Hello and welcome to the Max Communications 2020 podcast, a series of podcasts where we explore various archives and collections. My name is Faith Williams and I'm joined today by Alison Cable, archivist for the Rochester Bridge Trust. Hi Alison, would you like to introduce yourself and talk about what you do and, and about what the Rochester Bridge Trust does? Hello there, yes, hi, I'm Alison Cable and um, I'm the archivist uh, here in Rochester at the Rochester Bridge Trust. Um, I've been an archivist for I hate to say it, uh, 30 years this year, and I have previously worked almost exclusively in local authority archives, where your reporter is required to know a bit about hundreds of different collections. Uh, and I decided that after about 25 years, it might be nice to work in an archive where it's a bit more specialist. I could really get to know the organisation and the collections and, and just specialise in that. Um, and I'd worked in Kent probably since about the year 2000. I'd initially moved to Kent to work um, for the County Council Archive Service. And I worked there for about eight years. And then I worked for Medway Council as their archivist. And I was there for about nine years. And so when I saw this job, I thought, well, that's um, a perfect way to do something a bit more specialised but also to utilise the knowledge I've accrued about the history of, of Kent over the last 15, 16 years. And uh, one of my first jobs after I qualified was actually with Tyne and Weir Archives, um, where they had a lot of industrial history and a lot of engineering records and so forth. And obviously um, the River Tyne has a lot of bridges, so I could see sort of lots of parallels and, and common strands with, with this new role. So I came here to the Bridge Trust about two years ago. Um, how do you spend an average day then? I suppose probably like every everybody else, the first thing you do is just to check um, you know, what inquiries are coming. Um, but I have to say, generally speaking, the inquiries tend to be um, internal inquiries from, from colleagues and from our sort of partners and from our contractors and so on. It's, it's quite an exciting day if I've got a, a historical inquiry in from a member of the public or something to do with, with local history. Um, so at the minute, I've got a few projects on the go. We recently took all the data from an old redundant software package and had it um, Put onto a new software platform. I've been using IDList when I first arrived here, which not many people have encountered, and it's you know it's totally unsupported. So we thought we'd get with the 21st century and, and uh, use some axial software. So um, a lot of my time has been spent, certainly for the last year, in data tidying and, and working out what fields are working best for me and so forth. Um, I also look after a lot of the current records because we have a lot of um, files that have been generated to do with the actual engineering works that are going on the bridge so they can you know on, on any one day I don't know what's going to sort of land on my desk in terms of new material to um, appraise and catalogue and we also have um, a lot of estates that we manage in terms of property that we own and that elicits a great deal of legal documentation which has to be 
backlog pretty quickly because the chances are that you know it would be required for consultation with a quite quick turnaround. So yeah, as I say, most days start with checking my emails, seeing what inquiries there are, and also checking to see if anybody, obviously not in the last few months, but if anybody wants to come in to actually look at the original documents. Yeah, the Rochester Bridge Trust is quite an old organisation. So what type of material are you dealing with? Well, um, we, we, date, uh, we, we take our starting point as being 1999. Obviously, there was a bridge over the Medway before that time. Um, but the trust actually takes its starting point at 1999. And when, when the trust was established, and we initially called a trust, but um, we, we acquired and were given various parcels of land, um, mainly in, in sort of north. In West Kent. So we have an awful lot of estate records going back to the 14th, 15th centuries. And then we have, I suppose, really in the simplest terms, the collection is divided into sort of the admin financial records of the trust. Um, and then we have the technical records, which are all the sort of civil engineering records to do with the bridge and its, its predecessors. Then we have a huge collection of records that relate to the estate that we own and that we have owned in the past. And we, we, we actually own property, most of it's in Kent, but we actually at, at present own property in other parts of the country, including West Yorkshire, Cambridgeshire and Lincolnshire. So, you know, we, we've got quite a, a wide range of different types of records most of them of course are your traditional paper and parchment and lots of volumes but as you might imagine because the the bridge is is being um, permanently maintained uh, we've got a lot of technical and engineering plans which uh, can be quite large and unwieldy so yeah i mean we've got records going back centuries we're probably one of the oldest charities in in england i would say Who accesses your collection mostly yeah it's mostly um internal inquiries i mean it can and that in itself can be really diverse i can remember last year i was getting inquiries from you know some of my um technical colleagues asking me to look through the archives to find out you know what what color paint was used in uh, at some point in the victorian period um my other colleagues that deal with with managing the estate will be asking me to look for documents to do with way leaves and rights of way and so forth or, or you know tenancy agreements but um from time to time i do get some really quite interesting inquiries from from members of the public doing historical research quite often it's local historians you know the local um civic societies and so on are very interested in the records that we have because you know, we're very integral to the history of Rochester. You can't really talk about Rochester without talking about the bridge because it's a means of getting, you know, sort of the A2 across the River Medway. Um, but it, it, it never ceases to amaze me, you know, what archives are used for. One of the first visitors I had was um, a gentleman who, I had actually met him before when I worked at the archives in Medway, but he was doing research on the Great Fire of London. And he was 
wanting to look at some of the rental ledgers that we hold because we used to hold um, property in Leadenhall Street in London uh, and he was wanting to look at the ledgers and over a period of time to find out really you know what properties existed before the Great Fire and, and, and what properties remained afterwards. So that was quite an interesting um, inquiry. I've also, I've also had inquiries about um, the history of London, you know, from various academics and so forth. Um, and then you get people who are actually doing uh, genealogy, who may be one of their ancestors as a tenant on one of the farms that we own or used to own, or quite often one of their ancestors or relatives used to actually work for, for the Bridge Trust. Maybe, maybe they worked you know, on the bridge doing sort of engineering work and maintenance and so forth. Or maybe they actually worked on the admin side. Um, and then equally, you can get just sort of random inquiries from members of the public who, have, um, who are interested in, in some of the buildings that we own, so, you know, architectural students and so forth. So although you think it would be very civil engineering based, which it is mostly, um, it's it's very very history and local history based. So you do get the variety, even though it's a very specialist collection. You know, I do I do get a good variety of inquiries. But but by and large, most most of the inquiries that I deal with are, are my internal customers. Yeah, um, you you're, you mentioned that uh, you do land management still, and obviously bridges require civil engineering just to maintain them. So are there any particular challenges that come from managing this particular archive as opposed to the ones you've worked on before? I think it's actually, in many respects, it's, it's simpler managing an archive like this because, um, you know, for the most part, we own and we created all of the archives, whereas when you're working, say, in a local authority archive, you, you're managing um, collections that quite often they don't even belong to, to your employing authority. And, that, and that, you know, that's very challenging, um, you know, having to um, keep the depositors happy and informed about how you're using the material. And also, you know, being worried about copyright and so forth if you digitise items. So um, I think the only challenges really that I've faced that do cause any consternation are actually to do with the physicality of some of the documents. As I mentioned previously, we've got heaps and heaps of um, technical drawings um, that even after a programme of digitisation, they create absolutely massive, massive files. Um, and actually physically getting them digitised in the first place can be a bit challenging because, you know, some of these plans are, you know, they're, they're much better than the advertised desk. For example, the other day I was, I was moving some plans around in my, in my strong room and um, I found a plan that was propped up in the corner in a big sort of, you know, one of those big hard, hard tubes with, with mm -hmm. pins mm -hmm. either end. And I had to carry it up some stairs, and it, it was a good foot taller than me, and probably about ten inches wide. Wow! So it was wow. almost like you know carrying a huge, I suppose a bit like you know, possibly a cable, um, or it could have been if I dropped it. And <laughs> I was having to manoeuvre this huge and quite heavy and unwieldy 
plan um, you know, up, up these stone steps of our Victorian bridge chamber. So, yeah, it's the physicality that, that, that's the most challenging. And also, I think probably increasingly, it's, it's the amount of information and records that we're creating. That I think it's, it's a worry for all archivists, isn't it? We're, we're creating more records, I think. They might be in different formats, but they still need to be managed. And we all take far more photographs than we used to. Mm -hmm. And we tend not to really weed them as much as we should because it's very time consuming. Whereas, you know, back in the day, you'd have your, your, your film that you popped into the back of your camera and you'd have like 36 images on, on that. And that, that was a finite amount. Whereas now, you know, we, have, we just take as many photographs as, as, as we feel like and then we have to upload them and go through them all and then sort of try and create the metadata for each photograph whilst you've still got the information about you know what it is that's being photographed especially if it's something technical like a you know a river wall or something like that um, you need to find out you know when it was taken ideally what it was taken on and recording you know even the most basic metadata takes quite a while so I don't think I'm any different from any other activities any other organization at the minute and that there, there is a fear that that we're being deluged a bit with all these digital files that, that we're having to manage they might I think a lot of people think you just you know stick them on external storage and away you go but they, they have to be managed and they have to be migrated and you have to catalog them in the same way you have to make sure they're accessible and, and certainly you, you have to create metadata for images of which you know we, we're all increasingly got huge amounts stashed away on computers that we know that we need to tackle so um as i say in many ways it's a lot more straightforward because everything is relates to to the trust but um yeah some of the plans i mean at the minute we have a, a major major refurbishment project going on the bridge um, which has been going on for many, many months. And I just know that uh, once that's completed, uh, there will be a, a, another sort of archive created by our contractors of all the technical um, files that they've created, all the plans that have been drawn up, all the photographs, all the tests, all the archaeological, um, you know, watching groups, so on. They'll all have to be processed. So that's all there at, at at the back of my mind, um, but I'll, you know, I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. So to speak. Yes. <laughs> it's um, amazing how many bridge metaphors there are, actually. <laughs> what are your hopes for the future of the archive going forward? Um, well, I would like, I would like for more people to use the archives, and uh, that's that's certainly in hand, um, as well as the refurbishment of the bridge in the estimate in Rochester, we're just about to commence a refurbishment of the bridge chamber, which was the, um, it was the HQ of the Trust, which was built in 1879, beautiful Victorian building that sits on the Escalade overlooking the bridge and the river. We're refurbishing that, that's where my strong room is, um, and we're going to create a more user-friendly building with it's going to be more accessible for, for people 
and we're going to create a new search room. Um, ideally, it will have better you know, reprographics facilities and so on. So we'll have more of a focus for people to come and do historical research. And what's, what's very special about our bridge chamber is that um, alongside it is the medieval bridge chapel, which um, obviously was built in medieval times. We think it was built about 1393. And the position of the bridge at that time was um, such that the, the chapel was, was very close to the, to the old medieval bridge, almost alongside it. So when people came across it, they could go into the Chantry Chapel and, and, and pray and so forth. But over time, the, the, the bridge has moved slightly along. Um, and the, the chapel kind of remains there. And I've discovered when giving talks that a lot of the local people in Rochester hadn't really realized that it was a medieval chapel sort of attached to the bridge chamber. So um, I'm hoping to use the archives to do a bit more research about, about the chapel and um, let people know about it so that we can invite them to view it sort of on um, heritage open days and so forth. But um, I'm really looking forward to hopefully in about a year's time, you know, being able to welcome more researchers actually into the bridge chamber um, and, and more visitors to, to the chapel also. We've also got a lot of heritage items um, that belong to the bridge chamber and the chapel that would normally be on display in there. And it will be an opportunity to get those back on display, you know, things like paintings um, and furniture and um, artifacts that we found that relate to the bridge. So there's quite a lot going on, but it'd be nice to actually spend some time, you know, face to face, uh, once all the pandemic's over and so forth, um, face to face chatting to people about the archives, because, um, you know, when you're in a busy local authority office, you don't always get the chance to speak to researchers so much. And it's really nice for me to be able to tell them about the collections and how I've catalogued them and, and, and guide them in the right direction of how to use material. Which, I mean, it's great that people can do a lot of research online now, but traditionally the role of the archivist was always to catalogue and interpret archive collections. And, and I always um, think of interpret as obviously creating a useful catalogue and, and finding aids, but also chatting to people and explaining about the documents and, and suggesting different documents in the catalogue that they might not have thought about using. So obviously when you're cataloging, you get to understand all the information that's in there. And uh, it's just so satisfying when you, you can say to somebody, oh, have you thought about looking at this series of ledgers or whatever? And you know, they may, they may have overlooked that. So I'm really, really excited next year to get back to a bit more traditional public service and you know hands-on with, with, with material and, and meeting people and, and hearing also what what's about their research and um, you know and how they're actually using our collections you don't always get that feedback from people that are using online resources so quite a lot going on um, I mentioned about the the new um I'll be working on the, the new public interface which will be accessible via our website 
um, which will be much more streamlined and I'll be able to add images and so forth of documents and what have you. So I've got I've got quite a lot quite a lot going on. Um, and I'm I'm really keen to sort of get out there and, and really publicise our, our collections and um, you know we we've, we've got quite a active Twitter and Facebook um, community and I really like sort of drip feeding through new acquisitions and so forth and it's it's really great getting feedback on there because people are just so engaged with with you know the history of, of, of Medway and Rochester and um, it's it's nice to feel that that we the trust are, are very much part of that so yeah there's lots of things lots of things to look forward to uh, and I'm very lucky and to be getting a you know refurbished strong room and a, a nice new search room and hopefully some nice kit to to be able to help people with their graphic needs and so forth yeah do you need equipment for these kind of things yes I, yes i will do i will be doing hopefully i'll be glad to do some, some shopping um because even for our own purposes it's quite you know it's quite useful to be able to do some certain documents um, you know if we're producing booklets or brochures or or even if we're doing, you know, PowerPoint displays and what have you, we really use this data to maybe do some some scanning in house. Um, so yes, I, I will be needing some equipment. What, in your opinion, is your favourite item? You've got such a wide range of material that covers such a a, a period of time. What's your, what really captures your imagination? Well, I think, like again, like a lot of um, archivists and curators, it's 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 known impossible to to have one favourite document because, by virtue of the fact that something's become an archive, you you've deemed it to be, you know, suitable for permanent preservation. But, but there's there's always documents that sort of pop into your mind, um, and there's always documents that are quite pretty that you always you know bring out for. Um, you know, open days and what have you. Um, I'll be honest, a lot of the um, plans and elevations for the various you know, incarnations of, of the Rochester Bridge are are very beautiful because, um, you know, at the end of the day, that they are civil engineering, but they're pieces of architecture as well. Mm. And we've had um, several bridges in Rochester that we've looked after, or, you know, as I mentioned, it's, they're all Rochester Bridge. But we had the medieval bridge, which existed until 1856, and we've got some fantastic um, sort of plans of, of, of the medieval bridge, which were drawn up probably in the 17th century to do with you know the maintenance and so on. And um, then we had a Victorian bridge, which opened in 1856. Then we had um, the bridge that was opened just before the First World War. Um, so I mean, some of these some of these drawings. So the actual details on the bridge are, are absolutely beautiful. You, you may not be familiar with the current Rochester Bridge, but it's got some fantastic um, sculpture on there, and we've got some beautiful lions sitting on the bridge, and uh, pieces of sculpture essentially. We've got fantastic ironwork and so on, and uh, to actually find the drawings of those in the archives, they're, they're just a delight to look at. Um, but aside from those, um, I've always been really, really interested, like a lot of people, in old maps um, because of the huge estate um, collection, archive collection that we have. 
we've got some fabulous um, estate maps of mainly of Kent, but of, of you know, London and so forth. Um, one of the items that I particularly like in the estate collection is the aforementioned property um, in Leadenhall Street. So you've got a, a plan of um, these buildings, but also there's um, at the top of the plan, there's an elevation showing what that section of the street looked like. And as far as we can tell, me and a colleague were trying to work out where these buildings were. And we think um, they were somewhere, I, th I think there's um, a building on Leadenhall Street now and people call it the cheese grater. Yeah. Like, uh, do you know where I mean? Yeah. Yeah, we think that the property that the trust owned was just where that is now. I mean, obviously, you know what a, a plan of a building looks like and, a, and an elevation, but at, at the very top of this, the, the, it, it's like the whole of, of that part of Leadenhall Street. Um, and it, it's a beautiful and very informative plan. And uh, what's also quite interesting about the property on Leadenhall Street is that um, it's included um, an inn or, or public house which used to be famous for its turtle uh, soup. Now, much to my surprise, it transpires there's a whole history of turtle soup. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I never imagined I'd end up researching it, but um, it was quite the thing in the Victorian period. It was very popular, and there's certain pubs in London that served it, um, and the turtles were imported. I think it was from the Caribbean, and it was it was an absolute delicacy, um, you know, and, and this this. Um, in used to serve it and they used to supply it to the Prince of Wales at the time. Um, so that's part of our history as well. So that's, that's rather interesting. Um, we've also got, you know, letters from people like Thomas Telford um, in the collection. It's always nice. You know, you, you read about these historical figures and you learn about them at school and you're doing, you know, the Industrial Revolution and so forth. But it's always really nice to, to see a little note written by them, just a few lines with their signature at the end, saying things like, you know, oh, I've been watching at this time, I'm, I'm staying at the Bullion, and so it just makes them seem, you know, much more three-dimensional. Um, so that, that's probably uh, one of my favourites. Um, but I think even things like account books can be very interesting because it, it's quite fascinating to see all the items that an organisation bought and paid for in terms of things like materials and so on. Um, and I also find them quite useful for studying even things like the history of how we spelled words. Um, and you can see how, you know, even something like the word city used to be sometimes written as two T's in it, oh, there used to be extra E's on the end of words and so on. Um, I want me and one of my colleagues were having a chat the other day about, you know, when did spelling become much more formalised and we decided it was probably with, with the, you know, onset of, of the printing press and newspapers in the 1700s and that. So we decided there's a blog in that somewhere. Uh, I'm going to put some examples of, you know, from, from the archives of, of common words, but that were spelled differently maybe in the early 1700s. They're recognisable now, but they're just spelled a little bit differently. And people often spell things just as they said them, so if they had a particular accent, they might spell them in the way that they thought it, you know, it should be spelled. 
account books and, and rental ledgers can be useful in that respect. And um, we've got some fantastic photographs as well. Um, one of the sub-collections of our photographic collection is a series of photographs which um, the copies of which were donated to us by the Royal Engineers. Now, the Royal Engineers are based uh, in Gillingham, which is very, very close to Rochester. And, and they've always had quite strong links with the Bridge Trust. And in the um, 1850s, when the Victorian Bridge was being built, that was William Cubitt's Bridge, they pretty much documented um, the building and the demolition of the old bridge. And so we've got this series of fantastic photographs of not just the bridge and the river, but also the buildings in the background and the people that were working on the bridge. So you, I mean, that's the beauty of old photographs is that you can get so much information from them about um, you know, geography, um, transport, uh, fashion, and so forth. Um, and what's What's really nice is that um, they managed to capture the demolition of the medieval bridge. So for a, for a short period of time, the, the two bridges existed in tandem, as you might imagine. Um, you know, they had to have a handover. So we had the new Victorian bridge, and then just a, you know a few metres away, the medieval bridge, and the Royal Engineers were um, commissioned to demolish the bridge on behalf of the trust. Um, which was um, probably a um, good experience for them because they have to, you know, hone their skills. And after all, the Royal Engineers are involved in building and, and destroying bridges and, and, and so forth during times of war. So they're a fantastic series of photographs, and um, they, they always go down well when I, when I give talks. And as a as a sort of offshoot from that little story about the Royal Engineers photograph. Um, when the medieval bridge was demolished, a lot of the stonework was was reused. Um, a lot of the old balustrade were reused um, on the Esplanade here in Rochester. But um, equally, a lot of the stonework was was sold off to you know people locally. Who um, there are many stories of people having bits of the old medieval Rochester bridge in their houses or gardens. And apparently, um, somebody gave some of the stonework to Charles Dickens, who lived quite locally, um, one of the villages not far from Rochester, and he had it made into a sundial for his for his garden. And there is a letter, I think, at the Dickens Museum in which he mentions this. And it's just amazing. I'll go out and give talks locally, and people say, "Oh, I think I think our house has got you know part of the medieval bridge in in the garden wall." And so, I mean, obviously, it's very difficult to prove that, but uh, quite it's quite a nice thought, you know, that that kind of the medieval bridge is gone, but it lives on. So I'm always collecting stories from people about uh, you know bits and bobs that they think have been rescued from. from uh, the old Rochester Bridge and so on, and uh, I think I think photographs and, and maps and plans are probably the favourite documents of, of a lot of people, not just um, archivists and curators, but um, users of, of our collections as well. I think you know if you have a group in 
it always goes down well when when you bring out maps and photographs because because people can identify with them they can try and locate um places on those maps that that they know now and they can see how how the topography has changed and so on and how you know fields have now been built on and that and as i mentioned before photographs people love looking for little details in there and um, you know what sort of cars people are driving or people spotting things like tram lines in photographs or you get the transport enthusiasts who are really excited to spot certain you know models of vehicles and so on or 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 railway lines running by and so on so i think the visual stuff always goes goes down really well i hope that gives you an idea of quite how, how diverse our, our collection is i've gone from turtle soup to charles dickens sundial via thomas telford that is an absolutely fascinating collection that you've got there and the the stories you can tell from it are clearly <laughs> so diverse um so yeah you you are working to make it more accessible obviously on site which is at the moment a bit of a of a sticky situation for everybody and um, but you're keen to get people on social media and, and their feedback yeah. and if they've got any stories about medieval bridge in their house then you want to know oh, about that, it that would be amazing yeah or, or any photographs or anything like that i'm always keen as well to hear from people um as i touched on earlier um, who believe that maybe one of their relatives or ancestors worked for the bridge. So as you can imagine, there have been over the centuries, there must be loads of people who worked. You know, not not just the people who were the foremen or the or the um, you know bridge engineers or things, but you know the people that maybe were laborers or or you know worked. I mean, we we even had people that had to do diving in the river to sort of do research work on the on the piles to the bridges and so on. So if anyone's got any stories um about about relatives having some connection with the trust we'd be really pleased um to hear about that. And if people contact us um via Facebook we always respond really quickly. We'll put a link to that so people can follow mm. through. That would um, be fantastic. Because archives are nothing without people to look at them, are they? absolutely right absolutely yes and i'm always adding to the collections um obviously we've got quite um a, a specific collecting brief but in terms of visual material it's amazing how much is still out there in terms of depictions um of the bridge be it uh, watercolors um illustrations from things like you know illustrated london news um, old postcards. I mean, they're a fantastic resource, um, and it's, it's, it seems to be quite difficult to take a photograph of Rochester without including the, you know, the river, the bridge, and the castle. So I'm, I'm you know, I'm always on the lookout for, for new material for, for the collection here, and even um, artifacts uh, that might have an illustration of the bridge on it. You, we sometimes see on online auctions. Um, you know, plates and jugs and gravy boats and that I've got, you know, maybe the castle on one side and the bridge on the other. You know, we're, we're quite interested in collecting any depictions at all um, about, about uh, the bridge. Um, I'll just give you an example. Um, during, the, during the summer, I purchased uh, 
escape house part um, online um, to add to the collections. And one of them was what I thought was a fairly mundane, straightforward, mid 20th century photograph of Rochester Bridge from the Spruce side. And um, my colleague put it on Facebook and you know, we got a few favourable comments. And I'd had to have it a guess. And I'd, I'd gone with, I don't know, I think I said it was 1950s. There was just no other visual clues. Um, and then the, the bridge clerk noticed on the left-hand side a rather interesting, very high sort of street lamp. And um, this morning we've deduced that it was a lamp that would have been probably put in place when there was still a farm going over the bridge. Um, and we know that the tram ceased to be used in Rochester in 1932. And my line manager pointed out that there was no sign of any overhead lines for the tram. And then I thought, I wonder if you can find out online what it cost to post a postcard at certain points in the 20th century, because on the reverse of the postcard, there was no writing and there was no postage stamp. But there was printed on it the cost of you know what it would cost to send it, which was one and a half old pence. So I found um, a website which just gave a very um, brief table of charges for sending postcards up to the 1960s. And, and from that, so from the comment about the light that my uh, that the that the bridge clerk had spotted, and um, this um, website that told you. That between 1925 and 1940, it cost one and a half pence to send a postcard. We were able to to date the postcard, and um, what was quite a mundane image has now become quite interesting because because of this lamp that I haven't spotted, at, at, you know, on the left hand side of, of the photograph. So, yeah, I, I just love looking for clues in, in photographs and paintings and that, that that just helps. Not just tell the story of our bridge, but, but, but of Rochester as well. So, um, so if anyone's got any any visual um, images that they want to share with us on Facebook or Twitter, please please feel free to do so. Thank you for talking to me today, Alison. It's been a real treat to hear about your enthusiasm oh. for what is clearly an integral part of Rochester community. Yeah, we we, we like to think so. Um, Yes. So yes, there's lots of exciting things happening. It's been, it's, you know, it's felt this year, hasn't it? Like it's it's all been a bit of a non-event. Um, but you know, when Heritage Open Days came round, and normally we would open the door to the bridge top and so on, we couldn't this year. You, you just have to be a bit more creative. So you know, like a lot of people, we did a virtual exhibition of the chapel and so on. Um, but hopefully next year we'll be able to actually open the doors and people can have a look around the uh, before mentioned medieval building at the side of the River Medway. I'm sure it'll be a lovely day trip to look uh, forward thanks. to. Yeah. Thank you for your time, Alison. Right, thank you.